Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Tom Bissell. Tom, could you please introduce yourself? I would be delighted. My name is Tom Bissell. I am a writer. I write uh, magazine pieces. I've written 10 books. I'm also a screenwriter. I've written for multiple big-budget video games and a few television shows. So I have a kind of odd career in which I wade around in various <laughs> ponds of of uh, literary output. Uh, so th thank you for coming on the show today. We're going to be talking about a piece that you published in Harper's Magazine in the May issue. The headline is, or the title is, Time is a Violent Stream on Losing a Father and Finding Stoicism. I really enjoyed the essay a lot. It's a combination personal essay, exploration of ideas, and you meld together the two, the, those separate parts really well. Um, so a link, which I think you don't need to be a Harper subscriber to access at least one, <laughs> one link a month or something like that. You get that. one a month. Yeah. You get one freebie a month. The link to this will be in the notes or you can, you know, purchase the physical copy of Harper's. Well, why don't we start with the question of what, what is stoicism? with a capital S and how is it different from stoicism with the lowercase S as when someone says like, you know, you need to be stoic about this sort of thing. Like your father passed away. Maybe you need to be more sto stoic about this. What <laughs> was the I, difference? I, I tried to be a little less stoic, but found capital S stoic helped me a lot more. Uh, stoicism is an ancient sort of philosophy that began around 300 BCE in Greece. I would say most of the, uh, greatest Stoics were the Roman Stoics that came after them. And Stoicism is this systematic way of thinking and, and method of behavior that has an intent of what many have described as, as mastering our passions. And so you can probably tell from that that Stoicism is a kind of uh, post or intra-crisis philosophy. <laughs> like not a lot of people go to Stoicism on prom night. Uh, you. <laughs> And it's also a very intimate style of philosophy. There are not a lot of classical Stoic texts that survived. And the ones that do survive, the most notable ones are probably the letters of a, of a Roman statesman and public servant named Seneca. And all the letters he wrote were to individuals, his friends. And Marcus Aurelius would be the other Roman Stoic who, who wrote the, the book that I contemplated in my essay, a book called The Meditations. And the thing that is really attractive to me about Stoicism is that it, it it is intimate in a way that other philosophical beliefs aren't. And it's not theological. It's not a dialogue. It's not mystical. It's not catastrophist. It's not apocalyptic. It's, it's not optimistic. Certainly uh, it's, it's human scaled, you know, it feels exactly as big as we are. And I think that's what gives it a lot of its power and comfort. It feels very attainable. Mm -hmm. So, so in the common parlance of you need to be stoic about this, or like what what's something that's different between the philosophical system and the common like the, the common language usage. usage? So, when people say you have to be stoic, they're 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 telling you to turn off your emotions or not to feel emotions or suppress your emotions. Actual capital S stoicism says nothing about that at all. What it tells you to do is separate your emotions from your judgments and your behavior. And it means that uh, you have to practice that. You have to commit to it. And that means that when something really awful happens and someone wrongs you, your father dies in my case, 
rather than making decisions that are mired in grief and mired in anger and mired in resentment, do your best to accept that I'm feeling these things. Don't have any moral judgments about it. Don't judge yourself for being angry that someone cut you off in traffic, but also don't dwell on it and don't let those emotions determine your behavior. Because as, as Marcus Aurelius says, our, our, our beliefs cause our behavior. <laughs> you know, what we believe causes us to react what we do. So stoicism says, change your beliefs, you can change your behavior. And a lot, big part of that, of, of, of changing your beliefs is it accepting you're going to feel what you're going to feel, but then asking you to actually think and contemplate what it means to take the next step and try not to do it when you're, you know, lit up and electric with emotion. So small s stoicism tells you to suppress, capital S stoicism tells you to feel, but it also just refuses to make a judgment uh, on the validity of those feelings. It lets them happen but it asks you to separate them from what you then do. Uh, you begin the essay um, right after your father passed away two years ago, and you are grieving, and you're hearing your your daughter on her Zoom class talk about her you know, grandfather passing away, and then you see a copy of the meditations on your shelf, and this launches your like contemporary engagement with these ideas you and you had um read i think you, you say you you had read uh the book twice before but hadn't connected with it Not until yeah. this this crisis moment um wh what about the situation like why why is this a moment of crisis is when you connected with this whereas a, as a younger man it was just another thing that you that you had read. I I've always had a lot of death terror, um, and it's got it, it had gotten worse as I'd gotten older, and it gotten so bad that maybe five or six years ago I was not sleeping at night because I was having panic attacks for fully half the night, and hardly anyone in my life knew about this. My partner knew about it, but that was about it. And uh, I was just waking up in a cold sweat, freaking out, thinking about the inevitability of death. And then when my father, when I first learned four or five days before he died, that he was maybe in his last stages, I had a full on kind of meltdown, like I was anticipating it and I was worrying about it. And so what I didn't know is that I was doing something very stoic, which was uh, they have this practice called uh, premeditatio malorum. It's basically the anticipation of awful things. And uh, it's a very important Stoic practice because it, it, it asks you to think about the worst thing that can happen to you that day and then kind of hone your reaction to it. Think about how you behave. It, it, it's, if you think calmly on awful things, when the awful thing happens, you'll actually have a plan of response. You know, uh, And it's very similar to this Buddhist tradition of meditating in the presence of dead bodies. And indeed, a lot of people have you know, called Stoicism kind of Europe's Buddhism in a lot of ways. The stoic thing I wasn't doing was this process of, of non-hysterically imagining a really awful outcome and then figuring out ways to stave off the panic because panic never helps. And stoicism is a pretty good anti-panic medication. <laughs> and, and um, you know, you've talked to cognitive, cognitive behavioral um, therapists or psychologists, they, they refer to this as stress inoculation. 
So the Stoics were on on something, you know, two thousand years ago that that you know psychologists now recognize as a very uh, valid tool. So when my dad died, I had been anticipating it. It called into question my own mortality again, which kind of caused a landslide inside myself. And I'd read it, so I knew it had a bunch of thoughts about death and the inevitability of it and the importance of accepting it with calmness and clarity. And I didn't really know what was going to happen when I pulled it off the shelf, but I was such a wreck. I just decided to start reading. And man, there are some bangers in the first 35 <laughs> pages of, of, of the meditations, just some truly beautiful stuff, like all the stuff I quote in the piece. Those are all meditations that occur, you know, very early in the book. And I was reading them in real time. And it was pretty remarkable how calming I felt, how calming they were to me in that moment. And, you know, he says something about retreating into yourself and finding doctrines. The doctrines you find within yourself should be few and fundamental so that when you emerge from yourself, you'll be ready to rejoin life again. And that struck me like lightning. And that's when I realized I'm going to really think about this book. I'm going to really read it deeply and I'm going to read other Stoics. And I'll tell you what, I haven't had a nocturnal panic attack since. So I don't know if I believe in Stoicism because it doesn't really give you anything to believe in. It just gives you some tools to think about the ordering of the universe and the, and the utility of the human mind, your, your own human mind in particular. So as a set of tools, I found it incredibly helpful and, and you know, actually life-changing in, in a lot of very good ways. So um, it, it, it proved almost instantly curative for me in a, in a powerful way. That your night terrors or however you want to describe them, that those receded, you know, and you, were, you had like a, a mantra that you repeated to yourself from... Uh, you called a prayer for the fearful uh, lines from Marcus Aurelius. Um, that's, yeah, that's quite remarkable. I mean, I, it's, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I, it's, it's impressive. I, I don't know. It's, it's really something um, because that's, you know, that's the sort of thing that, you know, kind of behavioral therapy and medication combined sometimes will not help you with, with that sort of issue. So, you know, words that were written 2000 or 2500 years ago, helping is that's noteworthy for sure um so stoicism has had sort of a popular revival over the past 10 or 15 years and yeah. i i've read some of these pop books i i don't think aside i haven't read i haven't <laughs> read the meditations themselves but i read um massimo piliucci's book about stoicism and mm -hmm. i think i have one other one on my shelf that i haven't read yet and then there's this guy ryan holiday 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 yes who is maybe the foremost promoter of stoicism over the past decade or so and he had a has or had a website or newsletter called the daily stoic um how would you evaluate this like modern pop stoicism or maybe that's not the right term for it but well you you have some criticism of holiday himself who's an unusual character who's himself who's, and yeah who's unusual <laughs> to be involved with stoicism because he used to be a like a marketer and wrote a book about his <laughs> wrote a memoir of his time as a marketer about how he lied all the time which seems very 
anti-stoic to be to be lying. It does. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, as I write in the piece, Ryan Holiday, who seems like a perfectly, you know, nice person, and he certainly or seems to have, you know, decent intentions to educate people about this while also making himself rich. But he he comes down the, you know, he, he has a prominent place in this long line of Stoics like Seneca, who wrote some of his most searching, beautiful letters to his friends about morality while he was just engaged in gutter politics, you know, at the highest levels, you know, serving as Nero's sort of advisor. And, and Marcus, who was writing these searching, beautiful meditations, while one of his generals was this guy, Avidius Cassius, was just wreaking havoc and killing tens of thousands of people. And Marcus himself, you know, commanding his legionaries, waging war on, on captive peoples. Like, it, it's complicated. Like, Stoicism has, has always had this proximity to hypocrisy and savagery that is, I think, very interesting. Um, so Holiday is a guy who writes books that I find to be fairly worthless, but I, I, I realize a lot of people need, you know, the uh, they need the 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 pre-surgical <laughs> incision of someone who can speak about this stuff in very plain terms before they take the dive into Seneca's letters or Marcus Aurelius, which they're they're not hard to read, you know. If you have a good translation, they're fairly straightforward, uh, admirably straightforward, I would say. But you kind of have to know a lot of other stuff. To get the most out of it, you have to know something about the workings of the Roman Empire. You have to know something about ancient Roman religious belief for some of Marcus's, you know, more preposterous sounding by modern ears <laughs> postulations. Um, so I've delved into a bunch of neo Stoic books. I have yet to read one that has affected me as much as the, uh, you know, the old stuff, which just seems to be much more helpful and much less self-helpy. And, you know, a lot of this neo-Stoicism stuff is about honor and virtue, and that goes pretty quickly into rightist politics in a way that I find very discomforting. And a lot of popularizers of Stoicism just make it sound so broccoli-eating and toothbrushy, you know, and I don't like that. I'm much more attracted to the private spectral side of Stoicism, the the, the death part, um, the... Uh, the 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 part that really teaches you to not care so much about other people's appraisal of you, mm -hmm. um, those those are the, the those are the parts of stoicism that I've most responded to. Because look, my, I'm a I'm a writer. My job is getting rejected, and I work in Hollywood, where constantly things are happening to you that you have no control over, <laughs> and you know you can do the best possible job, and everything falls apart anyway. And Stoicism has given me an invaluable tool at being able to step back from a situation like that and not becoming bitter and just accepting that the outcome, my part of the outcome was in my control. My part of the outcome, I, I behaved with honor. I worked hard. I did the best I could. The rest I couldn't control. And I have to accept the outcome without bitterness. And it's, it's I don't know how many Stoic Hollywood screenwriters there are, uh, but I think if there were more of them, it would be a happier <laughs> place to work. If someone is interested in learning more about Stoicism, is there a contemporary book you would recommend, or would you say just start with the original text? Oh, um, The Practicing Stoic by Ward Farnsworth, I think, is a really decent overview of it. 
How to Think Like a Roman Emperor by Donald Roberts Robertson is a book that is is pretty good. And I think he does a very good job at sort of, I mean, he imagines a version of Marcus Aurelius, like everyone does when you're writing about an ancient figure. You know, you read whatever is written about them and then you imagine the rest. And he gives us his version of Marcus, which is pretty compelling, but I have no idea what it has to do with the real Marcus, you know. But um, it's a pretty compelling centering of Marcus in his time and place. And also, you know, a bit about his own life. He's someone who lost his father when he was 13 years old. And he was sort of like me, <laughs> condemned to discovering this philosophy because, of course, Marcus himself lost his father when he was three years old. So it seems to be a way of thinking that attracts the fatherless and the rudderless. <laughs> and uh, I mean that as, as praise, not as, mm -hmm. uh, uh, not as a criticism. Now, you mentioned there's some sort of right right wing online attraction to this stuff. And you mentioned in the essay that when you were looking for Marcus quotes on Twitter, if someone had a Marcus like avatar for their profile, there was a good chance and this person wasn't like a classicist. There was a good chance this person was like, you know, a quasi fascist who wanted to was advocating, you know, to return to like the martial virtues yes. or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, what do you see? Where do you think that comes from? Is it just sort of like, you know, the um, that movie 300 and other sort of weirdo like the attraction of antiquity to reactionaries or is there something in stoicism itself that appeals to that sort of personality? I think there's a lot of the just natural homoerotic, uh, you know, brain dead Western triumphalist thoughts of this was a time when like white dudes ruled the world. <laughs> you know, let's mm -hmm. go back to that. I mean, I think that's a huge part of the nostalgic part of it for them, but I think your other point is well-founded that stoicism in an unwise person's hands becomes a matter to determine your own virtue by exerting power. And by cutting yourself off from your judgments, it can actually give you permission for sociopathy in a, in a really insidious way, I think. You know, the, the Larry Ray, the sex cult guy who got all of his daughters friends in college basically turned them all into his hookers which is a story that i still am just flabbergasted by yeah this he, is the guy uh, it's at, is it sarah lawrence? sarah lawrence yeah sarah lawrence yeah i just started burst out laughing when i'm reading like you know the the, the times piece about you know the, the the when the dust settled they wrote a big piece about it and i found out that he you know basically just started hanging out with all these kids and, and how did he hook them he started talking about marcus aurelius and I thought, well, that's pretty damning, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's indicative of the kind of charlatans that this mode of thinking can attract at its worst. And and that's why I, I really cherish the private parts of Stoicism. I wrote in the piece that the thing I like about Stoicism, it doesn't matter if anyone else practices it. I don't care if I convince anyone to become a Stoic. I find it useful. It's helped me a lot. But... Even if everyone around me were stoic, it wouldn't change my fundamental approach to reality now, which is to just not really care so much about what other people are doing and to really kind of focus on the things I can control and the things within the realm of my own, you know, uh, I was going to say the realm of my own control, but I just said that. So I'll be repetitive. Uh, it's to focus me to that my one true possession is my honor and my virtue. And there are those troublous right-leaning words again. I don't mean them in that way, but my honor and my virtue and my character, for lack of a better word, 
those are my truest possessions. And they bleed over into my family and how my family regards me. And if I can provide all of us with a sort of baseline of calm, then maybe my little tiny three-person family, four-person if you count the dog, can sort of <laughs> can sort of just exist in this chaotic, awful world in which bad things happen all the time, that maybe I can just give us some resilience on how to get through those times. And everyone else's beliefs, I don't really concern myself with. I, I As Marcus says, if you meet someone and they seem like a shitty person and then they do a shitty thing, he says, would you, why, would you be surprised <laughs> when the fig tree bears figs? And thinking about other people that way is not an invitation to sociopathy. It's not an invitation to even hate them. When I say indifference, I don't mean not caring about them. I just mean not caring about what they do, making me crazy, making me angry. And this is why I think stoicism is such a useful thing for America at this point. America needs stoicism because we're a country that's just awash in anger. And it really is an antidote to anger because anger stems from this idea that, that someone has done me or my group or my way of thinking wrong and they didn't pay for it and I want them to pay for it. And that festers, that feeling festers. And Marcus comes along and says, why are you worrying about that? Like if they did an injustice to you, they did an injustice themselves. They didn't do it to you. The best revenge, he says, is not being like your enemy and not treating them like your enemy. And, you know, kind of whoosh. If you really internalize those beliefs, you don't really find that you hate anyone. You can be disappointed by people, but again, separate your judgments from your consequent behavior. It's, it's a very supple, helpful way of just moderating all of the incoming information bombarding you in the, in the modern day world. I'm glad you brought that up. You, you don't talk explicitly, I don't think, about politics in the essay, but you do mention 9-11, more about your personal reaction to 9-11 versus your father's, or at least like immediate emotional reaction to 9-11. And it made me think, well, um, America did not have a very stoic response to 9-11, <laughs> either no. small s or large. And uh, George, you know, probably, I bet he like has read Marcus Aurelius at some point because he was reading all the time. But yeah, our for our policy response is certainly not stoic. And then we just got through probably the least stoic president in American history, like <laughs> the, you know the opposite of a stoic, like the most emotional and reactive um, man who could possibly ever be president, and who himself was in some ways a reaction to Obama's sto like sort of stoic personality or less emotional, reactive at least personality um and as as for biden in terms of stoicism i'm not i'd have to think about it more yeah how do you what do you think about about that i think obama's probably read meditations more than once that would be my guess um you know because uh, i mean marcus aurelius was the philosopher king right he was the emperor of rome for 20 years and uh, let's just go back for one second and talk about how remarkable that is that how many times in the history of the world has has one of the most powerful people also been one of the wisest, the most care, cautious about using his own power, the most concerned with his own feelings of kindness and, and generosity to other people? Like, that's incredible. Uh, you could give Donald Trump the meditations, just like you can, you know, lead a horse to water. 
<laughs> but I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> he'd probably think he was a loser, right? Because um, he didn't use all the power that he had at his disposal. Hmm. But I do feel that that uh, you kind of have to be primed to accept this stuff. And I feel like maybe coming out of a massive crisis, like, oh, say, you know, 9-11, or say the financial crisis, or say the Donald Trump presidency for, 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 for us, thinking about something like stoicism is a very helpful way to inoculate yourself from, again, those passions that drive us to do unfortunate things. You know, uh, Marcus is always talking about how, oh, God, Beasts and we have reactions, but we have judgments and beasts do not. And that is the thing that separates us from animals. And giving into those passions, those proto-passions, as Stoics called them, makes yourself animalistic. And it doesn't matter if your cause is good. It doesn't matter if what you're doing is, quote, the right thing. Following heedless passion into situations you haven't thoroughly excavated is a recipe for disaster. And I, I fear we're heading toward another one right now. Um, so going back a little bit, the, you know, the, the person with the Greco Roman statuary avatar, um, I assume is, is very likely to be a man or a teenage boy and not a woman or teenage girl. Is stoicism sort of like, um, you know, in the, um, this issue of Harper's, the cover story is by Lauren Euler, and she jokingly says that she wants to be David Foster Wallace for girls. Um, is stoicism <laughs> for boys? Like, there's all the stuff about bravery, and I don't know, it's just, it's masculine coded to use, like, a, I mean, somewhat stupid it, phrase. It probably is masculine coded. I don't think it should be. I certainly don't think it needs to be. I don't think any of the lessons it teaches are gendered at all. And that, you know, women have just as much of a claim to these traditional masculine ideas of honor and virtue as anyone and, and, you know, mastering your domain. I mean, I'm raising a daughter and the, and the thing I'm always harping on is like, stand up for yourself. Like, you know, don't let people push you around. It's not a very stoic thing to teach her, but you know, uh, the time for stoicism is not when you're eight years old. <laughs> so, um, you know, the time for stoicism is when you have a, a sort of more rational foundation underneath you, but so I'm, you know, hugely mindful of how dudish a lot of this must sound. And I don't like that it sounds like that, but I also have to recognize that it probably does. So I would say um, I don't think stoicism is or should be unique to, to men wanting to emulate some of its lessons that I think it's um, actually an incredibly helpful mode of thinking for for a person of any gender, especially the stuff about separating emotion from behavior, because I am someone who historically, when I'm wronged, I would get very angry. And when I was crossed, I would, I would become emotional. And, and God, Marcus talks about how untraining yourself to be so emotional takes time, but it also, once you do it, or you do a better job of it, you see that like reacting in a way like that uh, in a way that I guess on reality television they'd call drama. <laughs> All it does is, is is just it's an endless drama generator. And I guess those people wind up on reality television because reality television producers realize that these cyclotrons of human drama are incapable of controlling their emotions, right? And uh, 
that I think is to me the thing that 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 would benefit anyone, no matter who they are, no matter whatever station they are, whatever gender they are, whatever culture they come from. That that baseline feeling of of not being a slave to your passions. Mm-hmm. You're making me imagine some sort of reality TV show of like America's Next Top Stoic or something. Like who would be, you know, I guess it'd be very boring, probably of you know because there wouldn't be it's a very internal thing and yeah you know that's a great saturday night live skit <laughs> skit you just created um, next yeah, stoic. Yeah, or just imagining a stoic plop down in the average reality tv show um they probably wouldn't be getting up to a lot of entertaining nonsense like, no they would not um and so you note that um a difference between you and your father was that he, he well he thought you were often being dramatic Mm-hmm. And he had he, he was a Stoic in a small Midwestern Stoic in this small s sense. Um, yeah, I mean, as now that you're um, <laughs> older and less dramatic, how do you look back on your dad's philosophy, life philosophy, or how he lived um, compared to the younger version of you who? was less small s stoic the problem with the way my father lived was that his refusal to um you know feel all the things that he could have and and he was a very affectionate loving man like i don't want to give you the impression that he wasn't that he was like the classic withholding guy because he didn't he kissed me he hugged me he told me he loved me he like he was a, a a beautifully affectionate person in that way but when it came to things like pain and the private feelings we have in our hearts he was very careful to hide that stuff from other people he didn't really talk about his quote feelings a lot he showed his feelings he didn't share his feelings and to me the great danger with stoicism which is this you know analysis of human fragility you know it's a way of shoring up human fragility the problem with it is that the equanimity that it says is ideal might actually be an impossible ideal to hold. That it might not actually be possible when a maniac guns down your child in a school shooting to say, well, this is the or- sacred order of the universe. And I'm glad this happened that fate, you know, foresaw this for me. And that, you know, dying is just a return to the painless place we were before birth. And I can accept this. Like, you don't want to become so stoic that you become a monster. And small as stoicism, I think, can turn you not into a monster in the sense that you're a bad person, but a monster who has so much stuff welled up in them that it almost becomes inaccessible to you. My father didn't have to die when he did. Had he just been a little bit more open about the kinds of pain he was in earlier, he would probably be alive today. And so... I feel like stoicism, I call it the impossible compromise in the piece that as a guide, as a set of tools, it's wonderful. It is not the answer because there are going to be things that happen to you and to me and to anyone listening to this that are going to surpass what stoicism can help you accept and deal with. And I'd like to think my own death is no longer one of them. But I know for a fact that, God forbid, if something were to happen to any member of my family, stoicism would feel like a very feeble uh, way of addressing it. 
Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. I suspect it would. So that that's the danger of of this of these tools. Right. Um, so your father was a was a Vietnam veteran and he was very badly injured during the war. I mean, there must be a connection between his, you know, co coming back from that and ability to deal with pain or desensitization to pain or just not talking about his own pain because, of, you know, he was almost killed. It, what, do you think, I mean, did his life just lead him to become like Accepting like pain? Yeah. I think so. Uh, he was a hugely vigorous outdoorsman and a man's man in a lot of ways, despite the, you know, the hugs and the kisses he gave me. He was a paradoxical guy. Like he, he was a Marine and a tough guy, but also a reader of, <laughs> of serious history. And uh, 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 he was a wonderful cook. He was just a weird jumble of contradictions, like how everyone is, you know, fundamentally. And so near the end of his life, uh, he had trouble walking because he had really poor circulation in his feet. And it turned out that you know, one of his legs had almost just basically been blown off and the pain had gotten so intense he could no longer walk on it. And I remember sitting with him one day and I was like, how long has your foot hurt like this? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know, about 35 years. Wow. And I just thought, holy shit. Like he'd just been grin and bearing it for 35 years. I'd gone on some epic walks with that man. And he was walking on a foot that hurt him for decades and never said a word. So what does that tell you? That's harmful stoicism, you know? <laughs> that's, that's, uh, cause you know, the other core message that Marcus constantly circles back to is that people need other people. Like, like we are rational beings and we need other people. Everything in the meditation circles back to those two things. And my father's brand of kind of Midwestern stoicism st steadfastly refuses to accept that we might need other people. You are not enough on your own. You need other people. Like if they sneeze without covering their mouths, don't lose your shit. <laughs> if you see a mom <laughs> and a poorly behaved kid in the grocery store, let it go. You need them. You need those people too. We all need each other. And uh, that's the sort of big souled part of stoicism that I admire the most, along with the crabby private internal stuff about, you know, accepting your own inevitable fate. It's now the stoicism doesn't make any like supernatural claims or it's, please correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it seems like Marcus will refer to the gods sometimes, but maybe this could just in modern parlance, we could just call this fate or something or just some outside power, whereas uh, you know most other ancient philosophies, even in their modern versions, you know, it, it's harder to separate a supernatural claim that maybe a modern rational person would um, have trouble getting their heads around. Um, is this accurate? And yes. Yeah, Marcus refers to the gods at various places, you know, um, but he always couches it in, hey, it might not be real. The gods might not be real and mm -hmm. he's always <laughs> what does he say he says like if you fear death you know don't worry about it because wherever you're going the gods would never intend to do us any pain any further pain and if there are no gods well hey that's not a problem either because where you're going that means there will be no pain and so he, he you know he very much has the high-born 
Roman intellectuals sort of carefully hedged view of the divine. Um, you know, the, the, the world of thoughtful engagement with reality that Christianity basically nuked uh, in the fourth <laughs> century. Um, and, you know, Marcus was, I think, one of the most admirable and noble uh, thinkers about, you know, I, I mean, I think he's like a hero of agnosticism, really. And everything, all of his beliefs are just grounded in the utility of them. Like, it's better to be friendly than mean. It's better to be healthy than sick. Uh, it's better to be kind than cruel. Like, because you can just see the after effects of, uh, of those around you. Like, is, does a room with 10 people sitting in it feel better when you make someone laugh or when you call someone a fucking asshole? <laughs> That's really what a lot of stoicism of this, of this branch of thinking about other people. That's what it really comes down to. It's totally utilitarian in a way that, you know, the, the American school of utilitarianism in the, in the 19th century sort of, I think, took a lot out of uh, Marcus and Seneca. A lot of their thinking, William James and all those guys, I think they were very interested in the Stoics. Let's talk about just the piece as sort of like a, you know, a literary exploration of these things. You, you start with um, the, the direct aftermath of learning about your father's death, and then you end um, talking about spreading his ashes, which becomes sort of like a semi-comic scene uh, <laughs> because it's difficult to spread the ashes. Um, how did you decide to like structure the piece in this in this way? I will confess that I am like 100% a gut instinct kind of writer. Like I just feel my way through it. Um, and the structure sort of occurs to me as I go and maybe I move some stuff around but I don't, I tend to leave it alone, that part of it, pretty well. I, I view it as the spookiest part. I never want to overwork structure because then pieces feel kind of mechanistic. So I, the structure just came as I went and a couple of sections were in completely different order. And my editor at Harper's suggested, why don't you swap these two sections? I looked at it and I thought that is a good idea. And I did <laughs> it. And, uh, so I tend not to sweat structures so much. Sometimes I think to my favor, sometimes to my ill fortune. But uh, I, I, I let I like letting the piece determine how it wants to be structured. And I had such a natural structure here. Stru destruction, I said. I have such a natural <laughs> structure here. It's life and death. Here's the moment I learned he's dead. Here's the moment I put him to rest. And I had a bunch of shit I, I explored and learned in between. I mean, I don't know how it could have been structured another way um frankly you know sometimes the thing has sometimes it's pretty clear what the thing has to be mm -hmm. we're probably about towards the end of our time um is there anything else you want to mention i feel like we covered most of the stuff in the piece but there's more it's very well written and i found it affecting and so i encourage people if they like this conversation to to check out the piece itself is there anything else you want to you want to mention did it make you want to read the meditations it you know what it did and in fact i saw a copy at a bookstore and i <laughs> a couple of days ago and thought about getting it right there i saw the penguin edition um but i didn't but maybe next time i see it so in other I words would, I, I, I failed i failed <laughs> but you know i wouldn't if i hadn't read the piece and i saw it on that you know the table of books my eye would have just <laughs> gone past it, even though i had been interested in stoicism and read at least one of these modern pop stoicism books but yeah getting you know getting into the real stuff you know the uh the original text it's both like there's it's imposing in some ways but also it's like well you 
you know, you're not going to get them. You're <laughs> not going to get a more pure version of it than the actual original text. Yeah. And, and the final thing I'll say about stoicism is that it's not idolatrous. It, I don't idolize. I don't idolize Marcus or Seneca or any of these people. Seneca himself said uh, that those who made discoveries before us are never our masters. They are always our guides. And that, and that would be the spirit I would encourage anyone who's coming to stoic thinking, thinking about a, don't worry about anyone else and B think of these books, not as ways that you have to live your life. You must change to be successful or to be happy. No, they're guides who figured some stuff out that worked for them and approach it as a, as a set of tools that maybe this will work. Maybe you have some, some anxieties and some hangups that really bug you that you don't know how to talk about to other people. I heartily encourage anyone listening to read Seneca and read Marcus, not like people reading the gospels, not like the sacred texts are being handed to you, but in the spirit of just thinking about these very brilliant people who are clearly trying to help other human beings deal with the same problems they had. Okay, that's a great place to end things. If people are more interested in more of your uh, more of your work, where would you direct them to look? Um, I have absolutely no social media presence at all. <laughs> I am uh, very I wise. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I quit Facebook in God 2013 or something. That was the only thing I ever had. If you want to find more of my work, uh, you can buy my books. They're available uh, at, uh, on Amazon and at independent bookstores uh, across the nation. Um, and, you know, I've written, God, dozens and dozens and dozens of things that are on the internet uh, that you can just find, Google my name, and they'll, I'm sure they'll pop up along with praise and invective for yours truly, but that, that, <laughs> that's fine too. Yes, so, yeah. you know, you note in the piece that there is a point where you were like very excited about a positive review of a book of yours and, and you were excitedly reading it to your dad and he was sort of like, why do you care about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And what is and and what is the great quote? And I now quote this all the time to my writer friends. Now all my friends who get upset about or excited about a review, praise makes nothing better or worse. My God, what a wise insight that is! It makes nothing better or worse. And really, who cares? <laughs> that, that, that'd be the other thing. Who cares? Uh, I miss my dad. So thank you for letting me talk about him for a while. Oh well, thank you for taking the time. Um, so the essay. Once again, in Harper's Time is a Violent Stream, you know, I, I don't care about praise either, but what something that does care about praise is the, you know, Apple podcast algorithm. So she can read and review this podcast and that helps more people find it. Um, and yeah. And okay. the, fun, the funny thing is, is that algorithm, uh, algorithm probably has read the meditations and it just did not sink in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole different topic you know yes. what's more stoic than an algorithm it doesn't it doesn't feel anything <laughs> but um yeah so okay something to think about well okay tom thank you for coming on thanks to all of the listeners out there and we'll see you again next time